Hello and welcome to Altamar, where every other week we get together to navigate the high seas of global politics. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Muni Jensen, ready to navigate the increasingly rough waters of the Caribbean as a new political storm is passing through Cuba. The country just lived through the loudest and most widespread call for freedom in 30 years and the biggest uprising since the 1959 revolution. Exhausted by COVID and food shortages, an economy that shrank almost 11% last year and fueled by social media, thousands took to the street in Havana, Santiago de Cuba, and many other cities to call for freedom from the authoritarian communist government. We will be joined in a bit by Jose Miguel Vivanco, the director of Human Rights Watch America's division, to dig into the causes and implications of these demonstrations. Muni, protests have exploded around the world in the past couple of years as unmet needs and government failures have triggered massive demonstrations, whether it's Paris or Hong Kong or even your hometown in Cali but and the rest of Colombia. But what makes this Cuban uprising so remarkable is their defiance and their scope and their size. Sure, we're we're used to the artists and the journalists and the novelists in Cuba writing things about the revolution, challenging the revolution. But this time it was different because it took the government of President Diaz-Canel and the world by surprise because it was taxi drivers and salon owners and people who were just ordinary people from all geographies of Cuba went into the streets. Clearly, these frustrations have been boiling for so long, but security forces responded with violence, tear gas, arrests, and by attacking journalists and students. The protests now are tamped down and completely repressed. Peter, it was a rare, very widespread and surprising outcry, and the global media took notice and I think was surprised. World leaders were immediately forced to take sides, starting with the Biden administration, who quickly stood alongside the Cuban people and defended their fundamental and universal rights, slapped on some symbolic sanctions. But beyond these general statements of support lies a very tricky political balance for his government domestically and abroad. So at home, Peter, President Biden faces longstanding conflicts between the powerful Cuban community of South Florida and also pressure from the progressive arm of his party in Congress. And Biden is backed into a corner by AOC, her team, calling to an end to the embargo, and Marco Rubio on the other side asking for stronger sanctions. You're absolutely right. And whatever the Biden administration has done in terms of trying to scale back Trump's hard line against the regime and look for international support for democracy, but It's pretty much fallen completely flat. If you look at even Secretary of State Blinken's recent efforts to find signatories for a letter denouncing the Cuban government and calling for democracy, even that had a completely lukewarm response. Who was absent from that letter? The entire EU, Spain, even Canada, which obviously were accused by the Miami diaspora of complicity and of protecting their multiple investments on the island at all costs. And you know, clearly there's a total lack of consensus on Cuba. So the question is, why is Cuba different than, I don't know, Hungary or Myanmar or Egypt, which are all countries that are so easy to denounce? And, you know, I think that a lot of what people say is that it's because of the 50-year-long love affair of the left with Fidel Castro and his repressive revolution that he and his brother engendered. I think there's another reason why leaders like Mexico's AMLO still resist denouncing the Cuban government's violence against their own citizen. 
because it really ought, shouldn't be controversial, Mooney. And that other reason why it's controversial, there's only one of them, and it's called U.S. sanctions. Sanctions have been the crutch for the Cuban government to allow it to expand its relations around the world. Any trip to Havana, for example, that I took, one of the people told me there's more embassies in Havana than there are in Washington, D.C. I didn't count them, so I'm not sure. But the sanctions haven't repressed Cuba's ability to get investments from Canada or Spain and Brazil. Sanctions have done nothing but isolate the United States. After 60 years of failure, sanctions have proven themselves to be completely worthless. And Peter, other traditional allies of Cuba are stepping in and stepping up their support. So starting with China, heavily invested in Cuba, not only has widespread uh, investments in tech, but also conducts regional intelligence activities. That's no secret to anyone. And its footprint has deepened since the withdrawal of the Soviet aid to Havana and has consistently grown to become its largest supporter in areas such as software and telecom, vaccines, government support, as in many other countries in Cuba, but Beijing is very well positioned to fill the vacuum. It's a position that was underlined by multiple high-ranking officials visiting the island, including Xi Jinping in 2014. But they're not the only ones. Russia and Iran have taken sides as well, warning the U.S. not to intervene, even as the Russian foreign ministry meets with Cuban counterparts, refreshing the relationship forged in the Soviet Union days. So Iran stepped into the fray as well, issuing harsh statements holding the U.S., and its long-standing embargo responsible for the protests. So no ambivalence there. And look, many analysts have concluded the protests, which were quickly smothered by hundreds of illegal arrests and door-to-door government persecution, that those demonstrations point to deep cracks in the Cuban political system. I, I don't know, but I know what clearly is cracking is the relationship between young Cubans and their social media and the government. And let's ask Taya to take a look at that more carefully. This is Taya Steak, and I'm Taya Ivanovich. So yes, Peter and Mooney, the sanctions, the investments, but what I want to take a look at is the social media and the online access of Cubans inside the country. So Cuba has restricted access to social media and messaging platforms, including Facebook and WhatsApp. The Cuban government has done this before, disrupting access primarily to WhatsApp and Twitter during a surge of more localized protests in Havana last November. So Cuba was basically offline until 2008 and then gradually entered a digital revolution. The biggest change came in 2018 when Cubans got access to mobile internet for the very first time via data plans purchased from a state telecom monopoly, of course. But these days, more than half of all Cubans have internet access, with the government being able to control, of course, local infrastructure through its state-owned telecommunications company. But restricting access, thinking about it more broadly, restricting internet access has become a tried and true method of stifling dissent by authoritarian regimes around the world. Organized and organic protests have been able to flourish by coordinating online. The so-called Twitter revolutions became basically synonymous with the Arab Spring a decade ago, and even more recently with protests in Belarus or Ethiopia, where there were week-long shutdowns of internet during civil protests because people were virtually gathering and coordinating protests. So again, this is my eternal question, Peter and Mooney. 
The West is increasingly considering government regulations to halt online disinformation and hate. Of course, it's different when we're talking about repressive authoritarian regimes. But my question is, to what extent should governments be able to regulate, or in this case, turn off social media such as Facebook and Twitter? especially when it comes during a time of citizens' clear desire to express unhappiness with their governments. Let me know what you think by tweeting at Altamar Podcast. It's hard to anticipate how this is all going to play out as once again, Cuba, an island of 11 million people, captures the world attention. To help us understand what happened in July and what future awaits the Cuban people, we have Jose Miguel Vivanco, Director of Human Rights Watch's America's Division. A good friend, Jose Miguel, is a strong, strong advocate for freedom, and his clear voice in defense of human rights are well known throughout the Americas. He proudly wears the badge of being personally thrown out of Venezuela and is feared equally by authoritarian leaders from the left and the right. Vivanco has been an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center and the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Jose Miguel, welcome to Altamar. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Let's start by looking at the protests in Cuba. I mean, they were the largest in decades. Why did these protests happen now? What factors triggered them? And why were they so surprisingly widespread? Look, on the week of July 11th, thousands of Cubans took to the streets across the country in landmark demonstrations, protesting long-standing restrictions on rights, you know, scarcity of food and medicines, and the government's disastrous response to the pandemic. These are the largest protests in Cuba since uh, 94, the Maleconazo protest in, in Havana, which, by the way, was concentrated mostly in La Habana. Now, many protesters have chanted liberty, freedom, or motherland and life, uh, in re- referencing a song performed by Cuban artists in, in Havana, Miami, that challenges the, the Cuban government's old slogan, uh, motherland or death, patria o muerte, and, uh, and criticizes, of course, repression in Cuba. Uh, now, there are two main factors that explain the timing of this uh, protest. You know, first, the increased access to the internet has enabled many to organize protests and report on abuses in ways that were virtually impossible only a few years ago. And this, uh, all despite the government's attempt to restrict it. And secondly, is the obviously the economic situation, which is a disaster. The pandemic has virtually collapsed the tourism industry which has for years uh, been one of the main sources of income in, uh, to Cuba. Now, the pandemic, plus, uh, you know, uh, if you add the crisis in Venezuela, you know, a big provider of cheap oil to, for the country, and the U.S. sanctions, uh, including restrictions on remittances, have created a very difficult economic situation for the Cubans. Now, thousands of Cubans have to, you know, be standing in line for hours to get basic food supplies such as bread or eggs. That is, I think, is a succinct explanation of this implosion. And unfortunately, the government responded 
swiftly, efficiently, violently arresting and threatening protesters. And it seems like the protesters' chance for freedoms were silenced, or at least for now. Give us a sense of how bad was the repression? What are we talking about in terms of how many prisoners, how many people are simply don't know where their family members are, how many were threatened? What are the chances the protests are going to come back? Look, the repression has been brutal. At uh, Human Rights Watch, we have interviewed more than 100 people in Cuba since the protests ended. Um, we have documented multiple cases of brutal beatings, arbitrary detention, abusive uh, criminal trials. More than 800 people have been detained, including many uh, who were held incommunicado, who had no possibility of calling their relatives or their lawyers if they have any. And the Cuban government has already convicted 62 through this you know, sham trials that are totally travesty to any basic concept of due process. Now, these protesters are punished uh, for participating in peaceful protest, you know, often like a lawyer and are brought to courts that don't have a single inch of independence. Uh, keep in mind that the judiciary is completely subordinated to executive control in Cuba. Now, it's, it, it is hard to say whether the protests will resume. I think thousands of Cubans are tired. They have fear. They are tired of repression. And, and many want change. But the response to the protests has been so brutal, so swift, uh, and so terrifying that many are afraid of taking the streets again. Jose Miguel, I mean, there's still lots of people in the world that don't see Cuba as an authoritarian country. I mean, I, when I was talking to Mooney before, I likened it. Why, I don't understand why they don't see it like people see Myanmar or Egypt. But the fact is that Cuba is rife with laws that impede any political freedoms. You, you have talked to me before about one particular law, but I just want to walk us through a couple of examples of these laws which restrict the Cuban people every day. Look, you are exactly right. Over the last decades, the Cuban government has developed a repressive machinery that is deeply entrenched in, in its laws. I can give you a couple of examples. In Cuba, you could be detained for what they call pre-delinquent behavior, believe it or not, pre-delinquent behavior. Uh, that is, you know, you have not committed any crime, but based on your behavior, based on your political opinions, uh, the regime thinks that you are likely to commit a crime in the future. And so they detain you until they consider that you are no longer dangerous for the regime. Now, in Cuba, the legislation also explicitly forbids people from participating in independent journalism, for example. There is a list of activities that people can and cannot do for living. And journalism believe it or not, is clearly forbidden. In Cuba, you know, there is a 2019 relatively recent law that prohibits posting online any information that is, and I have here the law verbatim, I'm going to quote the, 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 the reference to the law, quote, contrary to the social interests, morals, and good manners, end of a quote. And who decided what is forbidden? The government of Cuba, of course. And uh, I could go on and on, you know, you know, but it's a whole very detailed machinery of repression 
that they have established to limit people's basic rights. So why is it so hard for many democratic countries, Europe and Latin America, to denounce the government repression? And I mean, immediately the U.S. tried to create a coalition to denounce the Cuban government, which completely fell flat, not only among traditional foes that you would expect to be opposed, like China, Russia, Iran, but also by Spain, other EU countries, Canada. What is a big roadblock from, from speaking up against this repression? Look, the lack of consensus, international consensus on Cuba, is unfortunately a long-standing problem that has enabled this uh, anachronic regime to persist with its um, old-fashioned uh, repression. I will never, obviously, expect strong human rights statements, uh, you know, from governments like the Chinese or the Russian. You know, but we could expect much more from Spain or Canada. You know, one of the reasons that support is difficult to achieve in the, regarding Cuba is the U.S. embargo. The embargo has provided the Cuban government with an excuse for its problems, a, you know, a pretext for its abuses and a way to garner sympathy, believe it or not, sympathy abroad, the government, you know, abroad, you know, with governments that might otherwise have been willing to condemn the country's uh, repressive pr practices more vocally. Also, there's significant investments by countries like Canada and Spain in the island that may have changed the position or delayed the denouncement also. But consensus is really hard to find, especially in the Americas. And you mentioned kind of this duality. And at the OAS, Mexico joined Venezuela, Nicaragua, and others such as Argentina in refraining from condemning Cuba. And it's hard to believe and it's hard to find the reasons why Cuba gets the support of other countries consistently. Precisely. You know, this has been going on for decades. Latin American governments across the political spectrum, by the way, have been reluctant to criticize Cuba. And in some cases have, you know, openly embraced the government of, of, of La Habana. Uh, you know, last month, the U.S. Uh, led a multilateral statement condemning human rights abuses in Cuba. And it was only able to obtain support from five countries in Latin America. Colombia. Brazil, Guatemala, Ecuador, and Honduras. You know, part of the reason is ideological. You know, that is obvious. But the embargo also, you know, plays a key role. So long as the embargo remains in place, the, the Cuban government will continue to manipulate U.S. Uh, policy to cast itself as the Latin American David, you know, standing up to the uh, U.S. Goliath. But yet for the Biden administration and for the previous administrations, Cuba policy has been such a conundrum and such a complicated issue. On the one hand, the sanctions have proven to be worthless in bringing about change and is only creating a consensus against the U.S. But on the other hand, the conciliatory policies of President Barack Obama really did very little to change the government repression. So now Biden is in a sandwich. What do you think the United States policy should be? Look, you know, first of all, the Obama policy achieved some results, you know, uh, such as, for instance, the release of uh, 53 political prisoners. But it certainly did not, you know, bring full political reform. But, there, I mean, there is no policy that will bring political reform in Cuba overnight. We are not going to have democracy in Cuba overnight. The fact that the Obama policy did not achieve 
such results after you know just a few years uh, is not a reason to insist on a policy of isolation that proved uh, you know a costly failure over many decades. Look, I, I think there are three main things that the Biden administration should keep in mind regarding Cuba. You know, the first one is progressively take steps to gradually, progressively dismantling the policy of isolation toward Cuba, including by replacing the embargo and the existing bans on travel and trade with Cuba with, you know, more effective forms of, uh, of pressure. Uh, secondly, collaborating with governments in Latin America and the European Union to ensure a multilateral and coordinated approach on Cuba that expresses you know, support for the rights of Cuban protesters, journalists, artists, and activists, and condemns repression in, in the country. And lastly, the Biden administration should be working with governments in Latin America, also in the European Union, to collectively monitor and denounce restrictions on internet access in Cuba. Internet is critical as a way to ensure that Cubans are allowed to communicate with others and, and, and keep reporting on abuses in the country. I've heard you testify to recently to Congress, and you know, you've talked about how the sanctions have impeded consensus, but I also heard you talk about how people talk about isolating Cuba, and Cuba isn't isolated at all. Cuba is has diplomatic relations with so many countries. It has investments. I mean, let's go a little deeper about the failure of this sanctions policy to actually create any change. Uh, yeah, well, it's so frustrating, um, this uh, debate about Cuba, because uh, the embargo, I, I, I am convinced, and I'm not referring to targeted sanctions, by the way, targeted sanctions to individuals uh, with freezing assets and canceling visas. I'm referring to the embargo. It makes uh, an international consensus very hard. It's, uh, it, I think it's, it's almost impossible. You know, right now we have um, a broad consensus in Latin America, in the U.S., uh, Canada, in Europe, to condemn abuses by the Maduro regime in Venezuela. Why can't we have the same consensus on Cuba? Well, the answer is because the embargo. The policy of the embargo, the policy of isolation, unilateral sanctions against Cuba, is condemned by overwhelming majority of the international community every year in the United Nations General Assembly. And that is not a minor detail. You know, having this counterproductive policy in place generates a huge distraction. Look, I have raised the human rights situation in Cuba with leaders across Latin America, with head of states for decades. And oftentimes the response is yes, but what about the embargo? You know, you know, this keeps shifting the attention and impedes the multilateral uh, and coordinated approach that is so desperately needed to stop the repression in Cuba. You know, you just, you just, when answering a question of Mooney's, you talked about how important the internet is. And our colleague, Taya, previously on this podcast talked about the importance of social media for those who want to gather and organize protests and even just to get information, real information. And Cuba, along with a lot of other governments in the world that are facing unrest, has shut down internet access. 
how do you see this and how, how can this be avoided? Is there any way to force the government to reopen the internet? Well, increase, as I said before, increase access to the internet has uh, uh, created a real revolution in Cuba, has provided a vehicle for them to learn about the world, to see the world, to communicate with each other, to organize themselves. You know, uh, it has put a, a spotlight on abuses in the country and it has allowed people to organize this unprecedented protest. The government is certainly scared of this. And we have seen countrywide internet outages uh, on July 11, by the way, as well as targeted restrictions on access to the internet to well-known artists, activists, and journalists. Selectively, they go after them and they, you know, they cut off, they, they, they suspend internet access uh, for them. But this is a, you know, a clear attempt to hide the policy of abuses under the rug. And, uh, but, but it's impossible for the government to prevent at least part of the truth from coming out. Many Cubans um, have already learned how to circumvent internet restrictions. And the government doesn't seem to be willing to sustain long-standing you know, outages, perhaps for fear of inciting more social unrest. Some are pointing to the protests and their, their, the fact that they were so widespread and, and so large as a sign that there are fractures in the Diaz-Canel government. Do you agree with that assessment? Do you see a change in regime anytime soon? Hmm. This, <laughs> that is, uh, I don't know, a million dollar question <laughs> or, or even more. Nobody knows, frankly speaking. The government is, um, I wouldn't say it's impenetrable, but, but it's hard to get reliable information and to assess really what is happening internally within the dictatorship. Uh, my, my fear, my sense is that they have managed to uh, for the time being, controlled this uh, social unrest. And to uh, through these draconian uh, measures of brutality and arbitrary arrest and fear, they are pretty much in the driving seat uh, once again. But you never know. I mean, social implosion, this kind of protests are probably going to continue. Um, given the conditions that uh, people are living in, in, in Cuba. And you don't know, we don't know really what is going to happen with the government of Diaz-Canel, how they are going to try to reinvent themselves or to uh, deal with this um, uh, genuine problem uh, that they are facing for the first time in 60 years. It's, it's hard to predict. A lot to think about, Jose Miguel Vivanco. Thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Thanks a lot for having me. So two takeaways, Peter. One, the embargo's in the way, and something needs to be done about that if there's going to be any type of international consensus. And the other one, the Escanel is there to stay. It's hard to believe that despite the huge protests, it seems like things have died down. Let me say your takeaways in another way, which is what's a lot of people had doubts about, which is can the Cuban revolution survive beyond Castro, beyond the name Castro, either Fidel or Raul? The question is absolutely yes. 
the system of repression and the ideological purity is still in place in Cuba, just like it was before. Yes, it's only been a year, but a lot of people thought that without the Castros, this thing would implode, and that's not the case. And the second point is that the sanctions haven't worked for 60 years. I mean, honestly, they were put on more or less when I was born, and it is a policy that that is has been a sort of pretty much a disaster and has only led to America's increased isolation, as Jose Miguel just so wonderfully pointed out. America can't get anything done because everybody just answers. And what about the sanctions? So I'm going to have the last word on that. And you can listen to All Tomorrow wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining. <laughs>